Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Lisa Kendall spent a decade of her formative years in Sam Fife's The Move of God. After she left, it took Lisa a long time to realise that she'd been in a cult. Now, she devotes her time to working on policy changes that will help former cult members and children in high-demand organisations. Lisa spoke with me from snowy Portland, Oregon, about her work with Countercult Coalition, the organisation she founded alongside spiritual abuse expert Kent Burtner. From its Facebook page, which you'll find linked in the show notes, Countercult Coalition's mission is to raise awareness of issues related to involvement in coercive groups known as cults, and to improve public policy in order to protect and provide for children harmed by group involvement. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we start, a content warning. This episode deals with child abuse, sexual abuse, trauma, and mentions of suicide. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Lisa. First up, can you give me an overview of the Countercult Coalition and how it came to be? Well, I grew up in the move of God from 9 to 19, and until about 15 years ago, I did not uh, recognize it as a cult, um, because I didn't know anything about cults, like a lot of people, and I uh, looked up the move of God on a whim one day, and started, I guess that was where I went down the rabbit hole of, of research that led to meeting other people. Um, eventually, years later, um, I started Counter Coalition, I guess in 2014, mostly then as, um, as something that I could tie my work to when introducing myself to legislators. And then more recently realizing I needed to formalize it in order to make a wider and lasting difference in the area of public policy. Right, right. And you run Countercult Coalition with a partner, right? Yes. Um, I asked my longtime friend, Kent Bertner, um, to help me found it as a nonprofit. 
And then he stepped up and offered to be the treasurer, uh, which I find a very tedious and difficult uh, <laughs> task. So I was very appreciative of that. And so then we got to work on um, the basics of registering and filing and things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I've done many interviews over the years, and it's just it struck me um, how much work needs to be done on stemming the harms that are caused by these groups. And as as we both know, cults harm young and old. And I noticed that your work focuses on children. So I wondered if you could tell me a bit about why you chose this focus. Well, I would say the main reason is that so much of the energy goes into, in the arena, helping adults after they leave, helping adults find therapy. And there aren't um, enough resources, well, there's not enough resources for any of the issues related to coercive groups. But the, the issue with children is they don't have a vote, they don't have, you know, economic power, and... Um, and so it's just so hard to address it that not very many organizations do. Also, um, I, you know, from an emotional level, I've been very frustrated and deeply saddened um, over the last 10 years, especially about the demise of many of the children I grew up with. Far too many of them have ended up in prison or on registered sex registries or sex offender registries, also um, in mental health wards, homeless, and early graves. And so just year after year having conversations that um, I would recognize in real time were something that the mainstream public would find astonishing the things that we would talk about. And um, I mean, frankly, it's it's ugly. Mm. You know, many conversations with people. You remember that person who raped so-and-so's cousin? Yeah, my sister just married him. It was things like that all the time. Mm. And so um, I eventually decided to document abuses of that in the move of God by perpetrator, victim, and state so that um, spreadsheets could be sorted um, to help authorities in various states because the way that we moved around in the group, if somebody committed a crime or was abusive or exploitive in one state, they also would be in another. And the authorities were able to use that in multiple states. And so I think that a lot of it is that I was a child in the move Mm -hmm. and I know the things that um, would have saved me from a lot of grief. And so I guess it's, for, honestly, it's easier for me than some other people to address that. Mm, mm, totally makes sense. And um, as you say, you notice things that uh, could have helped you when you were in that situation. So what are the main areas of public policy that you think could be improved in this area? That is a great question. I wish people would ask that more often. You know, the United States is the only country that is a signer to the Convention on the Rights of the Child that hasn't ratified it. Mm. That convention requires children to be educated, that they have leisure and recreational opportunities. Right there, that would give jurisdictions more room to go in and support 
the children and or their families in better um, providing those opportunities. Mm. Do you know why the United States hasn't ratified that convention? You know, I think sometimes our government is um, afraid of making promises that would be very expensive to keep. So, you know, I'm guessing that that's the main reason. Mm-hmm. You know what? There's also, you know, parental rights um, are, are big here. Mm-hmm. And luckily, we've chipped away at that a good bit so that children have rights. And, you know, now our, how our government works on the West Coast anyway um, is that reunification is not the goal with children in foster care as it was now the best interests of the child are first with reunification as the goal. And so it's just little changes like that that help um, judges make better decisions in, you know, complex court cases. Some other public policies that we really need to look at are providing protections and support for children and and their families after they leave. Mm-hmm. By helping children, you are helping their families. They're going to have fewer issues in the future. Um, when a, you know, if the state gets involved and says, Hey, we want to provide you with free therapy for your child. They are necessarily meeting the parents. And so, you know, a lot of good can come from that learning about what other needs the parents might have. But, um, you know, <laughs> Australia and most Western countries provide for therapy, medical care, and even financial support for children after they leave. The U.S. does not. I've been looking at this stuff a lot from an Australian and New Zealand perspective, and um, a lot of people I speak to, they, when they came out, they didn't get a lot of support. So I think that there is still a lot here we could still be doing to improve things. But um, I, you know, I'm surprised to learn that uh, the US hasn't ratified that convention on the rights of the child. Um, but in Australia and New Zealand, we have ratified that. Yeah, it makes common sense. And um I think part of it is we're such a big country mm-hmm. that there are so many people affected. You know, the population is one of the issues. And, you know, there are children everywhere falling through the cracks who have been harmed by in the, um, you know, contact with a cultic group, not always being in the group. It could just be one of your family members mm-hmm. who was. But the fact that you guys have provisions for that by statute, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that we definitely need. For sure, you, uh, you you mentioned the the rights of the parent, and I also think about that a great deal. Where you know a parent has the right to bring up the child in their own belief system, which I think is is you know right and and should should be that way. But then it comes into conflict when that belief system uh, is a coercive belief system and uses these methods of coercive control. And so I just. I wondered if I could get your thoughts on on that conflict and whether there is any way to resolve that. Well, there's lots of ways, and that has been addressed in different states in different ways and especially in different different countries. So, for instance, in Utah, when a a girl would, you know, who a child would leave a polygamist group, her parents would be notified and she would be taken back and they would make sure that she wasn't able 
to escape again. Um, a law was passed that gave the uh, the child and the people helping her. It's usually a girl, so I'm I'm going to use her here. Mm-hmm. Three days to um, get her set up with options before they had to call the parents. And this law has been very helpful for many people. You know, in this case, the children are usually running from crimes being committed, forcing someone to marry, you know, even at 16 and 17 is against the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been so many other ways that we've been able to address that. In the state of Oregon, um, we have a group called the Followers of Christ mm-hmm. who have a graveyard of dead babies. And they believe in faith healing. Mm-hmm. So many of their children are per- permanently um, harmed or maimed and far too often die as a result of lack of medical care. And so Rita Swan of Child Inc. moved to Oregon to help pass legislation um, to ensure that not only the children are afforded their right to medical care, but that the parents have the opportunity to take those children to medical providers. Because in many of these groups, the parents are shamed when their babies get sick. They're told that they... Um, their faith in God isn't strong enough. That's why their baby is dying. If you take your baby, the doctor will excommunicate you. You know, right here in, not far from Portland, right outside of Portland, there are many followers of Christ who today take their children to the doctor because some of them want to. But if you're getting that pressure, you'll be excommunicated. You know, it's a tough one. But if you're able to say, I really um, you know, I believe in faith healing, but I want to comply with the law. I don't want to go to jail. Several parents have gone to jail for allowing their children to die um, through medical neglect. And it will continue. That will always be an issue, but we have fewer of those children dying today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And fewer of them becoming blind or maimed. Mm, that's a great example. And so would would you say that the work of the Countercult Coalition is... Uh, focusing more on the areas where crimes are being committed, so trying to uh, stem some of the more serious harms that are occurring? Um, No, I don't plan to address any groups or any harm. What I want is more of um, a template for other organizations to use um, and also for me to use. For instance, um, I and putting together a couple of public policy briefs, or I should say policy briefs, that can be used with legislators to um, explain the issue, the remedies, the long-term impact to society. It is very cost-effective mm-hmm. to prevent child abuse everywhere. You know, children who are abused, neglected, and exploited are very expensive to society. They're more likely to become um, addicted to drugs or alcohol. They're more likely to end up in prison. Um, so it's cost effective. Mm. But getting back to your question, you know, there are, um, a variety of documents that were the work that other people did decades ago. And each piece builds on the next. You know, Rita Swan's newsletters 
are a great evidence for the harm done to children, the impact on their lives. And, you know, people will say to me, are there cults in Oregon? And I now whip out one of Rita's newsletters, oh, another Oregon child death, um, so that people can understand it. That, you know, people will ask me when they, you know, here I'm, I've had experience in a cult growing up, you know, where did you live and where were your parents? And the fact that most people ask me those two questions means that they're thinking all parents know what's best for their children and all those things don't happen here, yeah. you know? Um, and so um, the issue of parental rights and balancing that better with children's rights is something we need to address as a society, more broadly speaking. And, you know, one civil rights movement builds on another. You know, we're benefiting from other civil rights movements. We're the, the new one, more, more uh, widely emerging on the public scene. Mm-hmm. People are becoming more and more aware of the phenomenon, um, you know, because there are thousands of cults in the United States, and yet so many people you know, think they'll ask, oh, which cult? Thinking it's one of the four or five they've mm-hmm. seen on the evening news. I find it really encouraging that your impression is that there is a lot more awareness uh, these days because that's definitely, that's a huge reason why I do the podcast is um, when I just over the interviews I've done, it it really struck me, like it blew my mind how many of these groups there are out there and how little awareness there is, even how little awareness I had of them. And the, you know, often the coverage is in the more sensationalist media. So it's, it's somewhat frustrating that it, it doesn't seem there's a, a high awareness of what a huge issue this really is. Yeah, I agree with you. I have to say podcasts are very helpful. Uh, we just had our first fundraiser when I talked to businesses about donating to our silent auction. I regularly had the staff say, oh, I just listened to two podcasts. So, you know, yeah, I'm interested in that. And and people so many times referenced having heard podcasts and so understanding a little bit about it or having their interest peaked and or having compassion and wanting to get involved. So thank you so much for what you do. I will be sure to share your podcast far and wide. Oh, thank you so much. That's very kind of you. But uh, honestly, like I really feel that the work that former cult members are doing who are coming and out and speaking out about their experiences is just the most important thing because, you know, having having been through that experience and that trauma and, and then uh, speaking speaking out about it is no, it's no small task. Yeah, we need a microphone though, and you're supplying that. Well, I'm I'm glad that I can do that small thing. I wanted to ask you, I've come across this issue a few times that there are people who believe, and I, particularly with the name of your organization being the, the Counter-Cult Coalition, um, but there's people who I speak to who believe that the word cult shouldn't even be used and that uh, many of these groups are just new religious movements who have a right to exist in their belief systems. Uh, and I wondered if you'd come across that sort of attitude before and what uh, what your perspective is on on that. I have, and I haven't as much lately. Um, people in, in our field will say groups or coercive groups um, and cults, we kind of use them all interchangeably. But 
and, and I have heard people complain about that and find it threatening. But if you look at the very definition of a cult, you shouldn't want to be associated with that. You shouldn't want that to exist anywhere. And so if it's offensive, you have to look at what it is that's being described and the harm that is being done. We're talking about crimes, forced labor of children. You know, in the United States, you have to educate your children. And so if they're not being educated, the state is supposed to step in. Um, exploiting people, which often means manipulating, tricking them into giving you their time, their energy, you know, exploiting people for sex, having them sell their houses and give you all of their money. That's not new religion. That's that's a coercive group. And that's very harmful for, for society. A lot of these groups take in people. They'll work for years building up the site, cooking in the kitchens, doing all the laundry. And then mostly elderly women are often dropped off in um, public nursing homes on uh, Medicare because the group no longer wants to care for them if they're not getting their social security checks and their labor. And that's after saying the world is evil. We have nothing to do with the world. You can't call the police when you need help. You certainly can't report crimes committed within the group. But when grandma can't cook anymore, she needs to be shipped off somewhere to what are the worst nursing homes typically in our country. Mm. Uh, one, of, one of the issues that I find is often I speak to people when they've come out of a cult, they sometimes, although rarely I have to say, but they do sometimes uh, here and overseas go to the police to try and uh, report what's happened to them. But no crime has actually been committed because the the you know the behavior is one of as you say more sort of uh, manipulation and maybe emotional uh, abuse and I guess sometimes financial abuse but uh, in ways that aren't considered an actual crime. So I wondered if you'd had an eye on the sorts of coercive control laws that are being discussed and, and moving forward around the world in various places uh, which are in relation to domestic abuse situations and whether you thought there might be an application for those in the cult context. Well, actually, it's more direct than that. And a lot of the times you hear a crime has not been committed. It's lack of knowledge and awareness on the part of the police. Mm. Be First of all, um, cults are basically illegal in England, Wales, and France because cultic behavior is illegal. It is illegal to um, manipulate someone for your own benefit in England, Wales, and France, and probably many other places too. Also, a lot of the crimes we're talking about, um, or I should say a lot of the behaviors that we associate with cults are looked at much differently today than they were 10 years ago. And it's changing all the time. Um, the legislation that, that you might be thinking of in regard to domestic violence, um, boy, is that France or England or both? No, it's both. It Coercive control um, covers both cults and domestic violence situations. Also, if you look at the situation with me, when I was 17, I chose, I thought I chose, it's called bounded choices. I only had so many options. I chose to go to this small farm um, in Grand Marais, Minnesota, near the Canadian border. And when I got there, 
I um, told the elder who, you know, met me to settle in, you know, that I, I, that I had been working since I was 12 and that I needed a break. And she said, no, you're going to be working. Mm. I was 17. I had not graduated from high school. I should have been in high school. And I wanted to learn. I would have been happy to be in classes. Instead, they set me up with a job as a waitress. And then on my days off, I made beds and cleaned rooms in a motel room. I wasn't learning anything or gaining any marketable skills. They were taking half of my salary and eventually three quarters while not providing for my medical care, dental care, mental health care, optical, nothing, clothing. Mm -hmm. So they're taking most of my money while they're forcing me to work and not go to school. So I leave with rotting teeth, no skills, no money, no contacts. And they were a registered nonprofit. I could have sued them. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of it is the framework with which we look at what's happening. If you had asked me about this when I was in my 20s, I would have had no clue about the exploitation. Mm -hmm. And I was just floundering, wondering. I couldn't afford anything. I could barely afford to eat. That's how they left me. My gosh. And that's such a good point too, is that often when uh, people are coming out of these groups, they're uh, at a point in their lives where it's very difficult for them to even think about, you know, doing something like taking legal action because they're dealing with getting their entire lives together and, and just the the day-to-day of that kind of thing, right? Yes. But if I had known someone at the time who could have said, you know, if I'd had someone, let's say in my family or something who said, you know what, we need to address this. Let's meet with an attorney. Hmm. Um, because there are attorneys now who um, give presentations, for instance, at the ICSA workshops, the International Cultic Studies Association. Hmm. Um, at their annual conference, they sometimes have attorneys um, who explain how you use the law um, as it is to get recourse for what's happening to happen to you, to you know, find a remedy for that. I think that if we all knew more about it, we would be able to better protect people, prevent people from joining, help them leave earlier, and know that there are remedies for these things. The problem is that, you know, we're just not talking about that enough in our society. Mm. And as you say, um, also having a viable path out is really important as as well, right? It's a lot of people... They just they can't see an option to get out, and if there were a, a, a viable path for them that in, included funds and mental health support, and you know the immediate needs like housing and and that kind of thing, that that would be really helpful. Oh, it would be huge if I'd gotten appropriate therapy from someone who understood cults. I would have come to understand the very common phenomenon of not having gone through the normal human development processes, the different stages of life. So I was having to learn how to speak up, defend myself, not be taken advantage of, you know, in my 30s when I should have figured that out, you know, as a late teen. And that's really common that that people have so many things that they have to learn because they, and it's not that you didn't learn it growing up. It's often that 
you learn the exact opposite. Mm. So the things that you should have been told, like to trust yourself, to speak up, you know, when someone's taking advantage of you or abusing you, you know, we were told the exact opposite, like death to self. You know, if you're going to be purified in Christ, you have to be, you know, dead to your sinful flesh. Don't think about your own needs. If that's hammered into you three times a week, you know, your entire childhood, how do you then leave and when you get a job, you're you're doing your coworkers' work and they're not showing up and you don't speak up for yourself because you've been told not to. Mm. And you've just hit on something that I come across quite often, which is actually finding uh, a therapist who understands cult dynamics, because I think a lot of people end up speaking to someone who doesn't have uh, the the right kind of informed approach. And that can be a a really difficult thing for people, I guess, to to, uh, explore all their issues with someone um, and and dig up all of that stuff and lay it out on a, a therapist table. But that person maybe doesn't have the quite the right uh, understanding to be able to help them? Definitely. I didn't know that I had grown up in a cult when I saw therapists um, in my early 20s. I had a job with unlimited mental health care, no co-payment, nothing. And so I went and saw therapists. Nobody asked me questions about my background, my childhood, which is just a no-brainer. And Kent Bertner, my co-founder, um, always says therapists should ask, you know, do you have experience? Have you had experience in a coercive group? If I had been asked about that, asked like even, even questions, how did you grow up? You know, did you live in a house with your family? Those things could have led the therapist to figure out that I had had cultic experience. And, um, if I had then had somebody explain that to me, I could have understood how I was exploited and we could have gone down the path of, you know, how I could unlearn this submissiveness that caused me a lot of grief, you know, at a normal time where someone else doesn't let people take advantage of them. I had trouble speaking up in many situations. I remember borrowing money from somebody one time and when I went to pay them back, they said I owed more than I did. And I just paid it. I think about it all the time. Why did I do that? You know, it's things like that. You know, people could tell me I needed to do something. And even if I knew it was unfair, I did it. When I traveled in Italy, I knew the taxi had driven around the block multiple times before taking me to the hotel. That it turned out was only four blocks from the airport where I could have walked. And I just paid him. And he's like rushing. And I, and he's rushing because he knows what he's doing is a crime. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fraud. And I've had so many situations like that where I knew that somebody was taking in Spain, you know, and I love Italy and Spain. I love my travels, but these things happen and other people deal with it more effectively than me. But it's just an example of how, um, people and cults are taken advantage of. So you're exploited in the group and then in the broader society. And then as a result, you have fewer opportunities in life, you know, than people who were raised in a more, a system that promoted human rights and human development. Mm, Of course. 
And I wondered if you could tell me about uh, your vision for the future of the Countercult Coalition and the work that you're hoping to do. And I know you've mentioned to me previously that uh, some of the past work has really informed the work that you're doing now. So maybe you could uh, speak to that as well. Yes, I have in the past uh, met with legislators, you know, state representatives, senators, um, even our fabulous governor, uh, Kate Brown, and with the head of the Department of Human Services, which is over our foster care program. The problem that I ran into over and over is we would start working on something and then, you know, especially somebody in elected office, they would end up leaving or going to the private sector. And this just kept happening. And then um, a few years ago, I reached out to some people um, from the International Cultic Studies Association. And I found out that this is actually a common problem, which is why I decided to write a policy brief that could be shared. So that rather than just meeting with people and discussing what it is that needed to be done, we had something to reference and something I could send ahead of meeting with people. So for instance, in a policy brief, looking at the scope of the problem, the scale, how many children are raised in cults in the United States. This focuses on the United States because, you know, we are um, in woeful need of improvement. Looking at Wales, England, Australia, France, and other countries, Belgium, to provide a template and say, well, you know, look, this is what they're doing there. One country offers $7,500 and therapy if you can show you left a coercive group. So looking at that, I also want to um, ensure that foster parents are trained to recognize children in cults. I was in foster homes several times, and in the last one, they knew I was in a cult, and they should have told the caseworker. Mm-hmm. When I met with the head of DHS, that week, the followers of Christ, who I mentioned before, um, some of their children had been taken um, into into state custody temporarily. And it was on the front page of the Oregonian. And I was telling her about that as an example of how children um, in cults end up in foster care. And at the end of the interview, she said, do you think there are children in Oregon um, in foster care who are in cults? And I realized it's just so hard for people to fathom that. But if you are in an exploitive, neglectful environment, there are times where the government intercedes for one reason or another, and they need to address the issue of the way that the group disciplines and cares for the child, not just the parent. And I know from experience that they don't do that unless explicitly, you know, told they should take a look at that. So, you know, for instance, foster parents go through a several week training classes here being able to help them recognize the signs that a child is in a cult. They can call and tell the case manager it's a possibility, and then that can be addressed. I mean, there's so many examples of how we can better protect children through public policy um, that I I feel lost in all these, mm-hmm. all of the ways that, that we, we can do better. Mm. And you mentioned that you were still in the cult while you were with a foster family. So is that that you were still sort of attending services uh, 
in like how were you involved while you were with the foster family? Well, when I was 15, um, I left home and ran away basically and went to live with my grandmother. Because my mother had custody, uh, we had to ha- get public help for terminating her parental rights. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother had been taking me to um, a local nonprofit where I was receiving counseling. However, he never got into any of the deep questions. Mm-hmm. But there were enough issues, even without telling him a fraction of what was happening, he recommended I leave home. And so um, so then at that point, living with my grandmother, I was a ward of the state. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up doing a summer job where I met a woman um, who was a teacher. And she and her husband got certified through the state. And I was their only foster child. And I went to a regular mainstream church with my grandmother that I really didn't like, especially after growing up in the move where um, it's more interactive or singing and dancing first or not singing and dancing, occasionally dancing, mm-hmm. but singing um, before we had whatever lame, empty sermons that, um, <laughs> that we listened that were foisted upon us. And then so I, I really didn't like the church that my grandmother went to, um, but I was forced to do that. When I moved into the foster home, I went to a few meetings because it felt like my home. It was the world I knew. Mm. And a developing brain at 15 and 16 absorbs more deeply the propaganda Mm. of the leader. And so even though it never resonated with me, I'm not a joiner, I'm not a follower by any means, um, it didn't resonate with me, but those are the people I knew. Mm-hmm. And because we were discouraged from knowing people on the outside, it wasn't like I had a lot to compare it to. Mm, totally makes sense. And so I wanted to ask, how can listeners in the US support the work that you're doing? Well, there are many ways they can support Countercult Coalition, other organizations, and the cause in general. I highly recommend buying the books of former members. Um, That is so helpful. It tells publishers there's a market for it. It supports the work that they do putting putting that out there. Most people who write a book um, that is published by a publishing house get a $5,000 advance, and that's the last of the money they see. And it costs a lot more than that, in addition to all of the time, to write a book. So it's a labor of love. Um, and I also, in some states, you will see in the paper or in the news that there's a court case going on involving people from coercive groups showing up in court, showing up in support. Often they're bombarded with people from the group itself who are there to support the person who's either on trial or in a custody hearing. And it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm showing up at fundraisers for events, joining groups like the International Cultic Studies Association, liking us on Facebook. We have temporarily, we're in the, we're in the process of um, transitioning from Wix to WordPress. And so we don't currently have a website up. We do have a Facebook page, Counter Coalition. 
We also have links for Cash App and Venmo, which maybe you could um, list at the bottom um, after the uh, after the interview. Absolutely, I'll, I'll drop those in the show notes for sure, so listeners can find them there. Uh, and yeah, I just I I'm so impressed with the work that you're doing, and I think it's so important. It's fantastic that you're diverting your energy into into this and I guess I just hope that the more people who can help raise awareness and the more people become aware of the issues the more improvements that can be made and the more that can be done to improve things and so is there anything that we haven't spoken about already that you'd like to mention? Well things are improving and there is so much work to be done and I feel strongly um, about having the background and experience and skills to be able to address these issues, public policy. So it's the most important thing for me to do before I die. Um, and so I'm planning to, you know, I'm 59. I'm planning to spend the next few decades working on this. I'm one of the, well, I'm the only one I know of, but I'm, couldn't be the only one. I'm one of the, I'm surely one of the only ones who grew up in a cult who has a master's in public administration. And so that's really helpful when it comes to nonprofit management and um, specifically dealing with um, people in public office, having taken um, government management classes and my background in having met with um, community leaders. And so I feel like I'm in a unique position to do something about this. There are so many wonderful people working in our arena, but they're working on different aspects of this huge problem. It is enormous, and it takes many, many people stepping up to for us to have improvements here and there. And we are. It's been just amazing what's been accomplished in the last five years. Oh, that's that's so encouraging. And I just, yeah, I wish you all the best with uh, the, the work that you're doing in the decades to come with this work. Thank you. You know, it's funny, there are so many answers I could give to any one of those questions that I know I didn't adequately answer them. Um, because it's just such a big topic you know, like the issue of parental rights versus children's rights. And they should, those shouldn't be in contrast. If parents love their children, they should want what's best for them. They should want them to have quality medical care and an education, you know, and then in the issue of, you know, why are we calling it a cult? And like all of those are really good questions with really long answers. Yeah. No, I totally agree. There are there there are just so many facets of the conversation that really need to be explored. And it's it's tricky, like with the parental rights and the child's rights conflicts. It's it's so hard because so many of those parents, they really are trying to do the best for their children and they honestly believe that those those belief systems are the best place for them to be. And yet from an objective perspective, they are causing harm. Right. Well, and, and it's true, I would say, in most cases. However, you know, many people who join don't believe in the message. Many people who joined the move, they were just in poverty. And they, you know, you could move on to a farm where, you know, your all of your needs are cared for. 
you work in the kitchen and then you work in the garden and you have a home and a community and validation. Um, and, and, and not all parents are loving and have their best, their children's best interests at heart. And that's a hard thing for people to hear, but I think it's a really important for people, a thing for people to remember. Mm-hmm. You know, there are, of course, there are parents who are incapable of love because there are people incapable of love. Mm, that's a totally fair point. And I suppose I, I, I do just, I speak to a lot of people who, uh, they, they really feel that their parents did have the best of intentions. And so they really struggle with this kind of feeling of, uh, you know, they don't want to blame them for the outcome, but they still have really bad experiences as a result of what's happened. So they struggle with that quite a lot. Yeah, I can see that. I've had a a lot of um, experiences that are um, different than that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of interactions with people in differing situations, but those people aren't going to want to be doing a podcast. There's a lot of shame if you sacrificed your children for the group, as in the case of the children of God. How in the world could you think it's okay to let people sexually abuse your ch- toddlers mm-hmm. on a regular basis? Many of those people have to know that's wrong. Mm. Mm. That's that's a very good point, and you're absolutely right. I'm sorry to end this on a downer, but the reality is ugly, and it's and too many people don't want to talk about it. And helping people see the severity of the situation, you know, I just mentioned the the children of God. There are 40 known former children from COG who've committed suicide. Mm. Yeah, and there's a reason for that. That's the group that. Joaquin and River Phoenix were in and Rose McGowan. And the reason there's so many famous people from cults is that there are so many cults. I'm sorry for going on a tangent, but no, no, I think it's a really valid point. And I think, uh, it, it might be easy to forget that the voices that we hear and those that feel able to speak out on podcasts like mine, uh, maybe like perhaps they are of a certain subset, uh, and they're more able to speak out because of a certain, I really, I, I, uh, hesitate to use the word privilege, but maybe there's a, a slight privilege in that. And so we, we should keep in mind, uh, that that might be slightly skewed. And I think that that is a really important point to make. Oh, it's definitely privilege. Definitely. There are people who suffered far more than me in the move of God, and their lives have come completely ruined. So, um, yeah, it's self-selecting. And my uh, co-founder and fellow board member, Kent Bertner, he has been engaged in um, helping people in the cult awareness community for decades, both officially and unofficially, both in the Department of Human Services and in nonprofits. And he is on a month-long road trip, so I'm hoping you would be able to interview him in the future because he has a lot to say about what we can do to make the world safer for children in coercive groups. Oh, I would, yes, I'd absolutely love to speak with him uh, down the line. So I think that's all the questions that I had for you, unless there was anything else you wanted to add. You are um, well-prepared. You're a terrific interviewer. Um, I hope that all of the people I know in our arena um, have the opportunity to speak with you on your podcast. 
Thanks so much for listening. And you can find links to the Countercult Coalition's work and how you can support them in the show notes. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support with or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au. And you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. Let's Talk About Sects is produced and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. This bonus episode was edited by Matt Brazel. My thanks to Lisa Kendall for sharing her work with me. You can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. I'm pleased to announce that work has commenced on season five of the show, in between my book edits, and it will be coming out on your feed later this year. For those in Sydney, I'm presenting a panel at Vivid this year with former cult members and Let's Talk About Sects guests Claire Ashman, who is in the Order of St. Charbel, Laura McConnell-Conti, who is in the 2 by 2s aka The Truth, and Laura Sullivan, who is in Outreach International. That's on May 31st at the UTS Great Hall, and it would be great to see some of you there. Just Google Vivid and Sects, Lies and Cults. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again soon.